0: It's great that we are looking at what we should believe about the church. I think a lot of times we get so caught up with routines that we can forget to actually examine, is what I'm doing every single week uh, actually what we should be doing as a church? So I think first we should note that when we talk about the term church, it can mean two slightly different things. Now, this right here, what we have in front of us, this gathering is the local church. Um, But we also talk about the church being the global church, not separated by denomination or by name or by meeting space, but united in foundational truths. So what is that foundational truth that we talk about This is what we believe about the church. Um, If you have your booklets, then it's found in there. Um, If not, then we also have it behind us as well. So the church, what we believe about the church is that we believe that the true church comprises of all who have been justified by God's grace through faith alone in Christ alone. The Lord Jesus mandated two ordinances for the church, the believer's baptism and the Lord's Supper, which visibly and tangibly express the gospel. Though they are not the means of salvation when celebrated by the church in genuine faith, these ordinances confirm and nourish the believer. Now, unfortunately, sometimes, as I was mentioning before, we lose sight of what really matters in church. And I want to share with you guys a story of of a church. There's a church that's found in Old Jerusalem, and it still stands there today, and it was built thousands of years ago. And it was supposedly built over the site of Jesus' crucifixion in the tomb where Jesus rose from the dead. It's called the Church of the Holy Sepulcher, okay? Now, we have this drawing here, and this drawing is actually uh, from the 1700s. And as people normally do with these religious sites, they like to build a a shrine or a church or something over these sites. And as you can imagine, it's a very popular site. Um, It's been burned, it's been demolished, it's been rebuilt, but it still stands today. Now, being in such a desired site, many denominations, many groups or different churches have wanted to claim that space. And so, they actually decided centuries ago to start sharing the building in order for each denomination, now there's at least six churches, six denominations that share the building, to have their services and practices. Now, that seemed like a a sensible plan, but wouldn't you know it, there was constant squabbling and arguing over who moved the chairs and didn't put them back, or people who were moving furniture in the church, or maybe they were moving stairs and not telling people where they moved them. And there was so much arguing that in the 1700s, they established a law called the status quo. In this law, nothing, absolutely nothing could be moved, changed, or brought in unless it was unanimously, unanimously agreed on by the six denominations that shared the church. And that is the reason why we have this famous ladder that appeared in that same drawing in the 1700s that has sat on that ledge for almost 300 years. It is the immovable ladder of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Placed sometime in the early 1700s to clean a ledge, or they said that they had vegetable plants that would grow on the ledge, and they would go up and down to water them and collect the vegetables. But it was placed there, and once the status quo became active, that ladder became immovable. Centuries have gone by, and that ladder has remained on the ledge. Now one man in the 90s, he tried to show the silliness of such an issue, and he actually removed the ladder and hid it behind some other furniture inside the church, only to have the ladder reappear a week later with a metal grate installed on the window, preventing any more tampering. Now perhaps this is a comical representation of something that really shouldn't be funny, (laughs) because in a sense I think we all sort of prefer routines. We all prefer predictability, especially when it comes to church. We like to know what's coming. Now, what would your response be if I simply said, Good morning, church. Today we're going to pray for our neighbor, so go ahead and turn to them and tell them what your deepest struggle is, and they're going to pray for that. Now, there might be some in here that would rejoice, but I could imagine that most people would want to make a swift rush towards the exit. (laughs) So, what should the church be then? It's very easy to point out what it shouldn't be. What should it be, though? So, John Calvin and Martin Luther, they're two very famous um, theologians, leaders, and they, they shared similar ideologies about what the church should be. And they both claim the church to be a gathering of the saints where the Word of God is accurately taught and received along with the practice of the sacraments. So that's baptism and the Lord's Supper. But as you probably know, there are so many kinds of churches, so many different styles. So which is right and which is wrong? Well, maybe we should look at a helpful question, and it's actually been a question that has racked my brain this last week. And I'm going to share it with you now. It's that if someone asked you to describe the church using only the Bible, what would you say? Now, that is a challenging question because most of the time our ideas of church are regulated by what we have experienced, not what we have read. So let's see what the Bible says about how exactly a church should look. Okay, that seems like a good idea for us today. But when we look in the Bible, there is no format, no exact format found. No exact manner in which the pastor has to stand up in front of everybody and preach a sermon for 30 to 38 minutes. He can't go over 40 minutes because then people get hungry. The band has to play four songs and then they pass an offering plate, or they know maybe they should put a box by the door instead. There's no designation about how children's ministry should be run and if coffee should be served before or after or during the service. There's no designation if the church should be 20 people, 200 people, or 2,000 people, if we should meet in homes or theaters or temples or parks. But what we do see are some very important instructions to the gathering of God's people from Jesus and the writers of the New Testament. We start to unpack what is the essence of church, and all the things that we gather to do on a Sunday, is that essentially happening regardless of where we meet, how many we are, or what we're actually doing. Is the essence of the church happening? So let's look at some of the examples of the earliest church. And Jason already read part of the passage that I want to look at today. And if we ask ourselves, if we are a biblical church, are we doing? Are we doing what they did 2,000 years ago? If not, perhaps our perception of church (laughs) And the interaction of the church is due for major renovation. So let's look at one of the earliest passages of the church. It's found in Acts 2. I'm going to have it up on the screen behind me. Um, And you can follow along in your Bibles as well if you wish. It says this, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. What I love about this passage is that it really does show the the genesis of the church, the beginning, and what we see is that the church is not a building, but Christ is building His church. I have to admit that i 've gotten this wrong in the past and I used to consider my work as a pastor to be to build the kingdom of God, but we have to recognize that the Lord is the one that's doing the building. I am unable to do anything without the grace of our good Lord, and it is so easy for us to get caught up in the technicalities, the blueprints of the church, and not the reason or the purpose of the church. We get so mesmerized by images of churches with large cathedrals and steeples and stained glass windows or a stage with lights and a screen or perhaps a a hut in a village or a living room of someone's house. And what I love about it is that the beauty of the church is that it's not the building that we gather in. It is those who gather. We are the church we get so caught up so often in the mechanics that we forget to stop and ask ourselves are we really fulfilling Jesus' instructions or are we just going through the motions week after week? Now, we see many metaphors in the New Testament about the church, and it's always talking about the group of people, it's talking about the gathering of the people, and it's defined by their unity. The church is being described many times in the New Testament as a, a family, as the bride of Christ, branches on a vine, Jesus being the vine, an olive tree, a field of crops, a building, a harvest, a new temple with living stones, the body of Christ. There's so many different metaphors because it's so rich. The church was never about uniformity and that we all have to look the same way and do the exact same thing, but it's about unity. Look at the example again in Acts 44. It says, "...all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need, day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their own homes." They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. They understood it. They understood that all that they had was graciously given to them by their God. And their lives were fully devoted to his will. And his will was for them to help each other, to live in unity And the incredible thing is that we actually see Jesus praying this very prayer for his disciples and for those that would come after his disciples. It was right before he went to the cross, and it's found in John 17. He said, he prays, I'm praying not only for these disciples, but for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you, and may they be in us, so that the world will believe that you sent me. The church is those who Jesus has gathered, and we are gathered, united for a purpose. Now, this, I was walking, I was taking a walk this week through Kamana Bay and what really helped me was to actually see a, a building that was being built. And it was an impressive building. <laughs> but, and it just it shocked me because I, I, I don't know, I'd gone by there so many times and I hadn't realized just how big it had gotten. <laughs> but on that building, on one of the ledges, I saw a large tool chest. And it got me thinking about how we are called to play a part in God's kingdom. And what, what helped me was to think of myself, as a tool that God uses to build his kingdom. Now, I have brought a few tools with me that I haven't used in a long time, but I refuse to get rid of them because one day I'm gonna do something with them, I'm sure. But tools have different purposes. They're not all the same. It would be ridiculous if I had a dozen of these (laughs) and none of the others. Each tool is different, Each tool has a purpose and each tool needs a craftsman because alone it does nothing but sit in a drawer. (laughs) And alone we are unable to do anything. But in the hands of a master builder, he is able to do the good works he planned for us to do in advance. So what are these good works? What are these good works that we should do? Well, we're all called to serve. And, you know, that's not a clever appeal of mine to get more children's ministry volunteers, but we are, we, we do need more. But we want, in general, for our church to be become fully trained in, in greater works of service. We believe that all believers are called to be disciple-makers, Church cannot be about becoming just the best version of yourself. It's about being a part of something far greater than self or image. And I know that perhaps there are some people here today that, are, that maybe they came just to, to perhaps find a remedy for their problem, whether it be their addiction or their anger or their depression, and perhaps you already know this, and the answer is not found within you that we desperately need the Lord and we trust that he is able and he is working in our weakness and in our surrender. No one should just remain a consumer, but we are to all come as servants. The Holy Spirit has given each one of us a gift that is to be used for building up the body. Now in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul is describing to the church there what these are, how they can build up in the body, and how the unity of the church is so important. says this in verse 4, There are different kinds of spiritual gifts, but the same Spirit is the source of them all. There are different kinds of service, but we serve the same Lord. God works in different ways, but it is the same God who does the work in all of us. Look at this. A spiritual gift is given to each of us so we can help each other. To one person, the Spirit gives the ability to give wise advice. To another, the same Spirit gives a message of special knowledge. The same Spirit gives great faith to another, and to someone else, the Spirit gives the gift of healing. He gives one person the power to perform miracles and the other the ability to prophesy. He gives someone else the ability to discern whether a message is from the Spirit of God or from another spirit, and still another person is given the ability to speak in unknown languages, while another is given the ability to interpret what is being said. It is the one and only Spirit who distributes all these gifts. He alone decides which gift each person should have. The human body has many parts, but the many parts make up one whole body. So it is with the body of Christ. Now, some of us are Jews and some are Gentiles, some are slaves and some are free. But we have all been baptized into one body by the Spirit, and we all share the same Spirit. Now, in reading this passage, can't you see why we need our church to be a community of servants? (laughs) Because we are meant to serve each other, to help each other, to love each other, So much that the world would notice that something is different. (laughs) Remember in John 17 that Jesus said, I pray that they will all be one just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you so that they may be in us so that the world will believe that you sent me. We are designed to serve each other by being obedient to God's Holy Spirit excuse me for using the tool example again, but the best tools are those that faithfully do the job that they are intended to do. Now, I could take this wrench and I could use it as a hammer, but it's, that's not the reason why it's, it's a wrench. It has a purpose and it has a job, but if I don't have a hammer, then I guess I'll have to use a wrench, but think about we're all different, and it's okay to be different, but we're called to all serve. We are empowered by God's Holy Spirit to influence others. We're not all called to do the same thing, but we are all called to play an active role in the church, in the local church. Regardless of our nationality, our occupation, our pay scale, we are called to serve. We are called to be used. So you may be asking, well, how do I know what the right thing is? How do I know that I'm, I'm doing the right thing? Well, what is your focus? Our focus as a church collectively has to be on Christ. Now, this is a challenging statement that I'm going to make, but I, I do stand behind it, that churches do not require gifted communicators or musicians. But we must put our hopes and expectations on Jesus. Jesus. We can worship Jesus even in the most basic settings because it is the object of our worship that should make worship exciting to us. We must, we must not become just lovers of good sermons and good music, but first and foremost, lovers of Jesus. Now, I haven't been around for too many decades, but I have been around long enough to see that many leaders in the Christian church will rise and fall, and some will fall very hard. But Christ is our rock. He is our object of worship. Style and ritual and how we go about things, they're not sacred. But God's word, that is unchangeable. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, that is what brings a dead soul to life. And we must never, ever confuse the methods of our worship with the object of our worship. We must guard our hearts to not let our idolatrous nature invade our church. And I want to read a a passage in Isaiah that challenged me this week, and it comes as a sharp warning to all of us to not let anything but Christ be our object of worship. Because even in church, we can misdirect our worship Good things in the wrong place can become idols very quickly. And this passage is found in Isaiah 44. And Isaiah is giving this warning. He says, how foolish are those who manufacture idols. These prized objects are really worthless. The people who worship idols don't know this, so they are all put to shame. Who but a fool would make his own god, an idol that cannot help him one bit All who worship idols will be disgraced, along with all these craftsmen, mere humans, who claim they can make a god. They may all stand together, but they will stand in terror and shame. The blacksmith stands at his forge to make a sharp tool, pounding and shaping it with all his might. His work makes him hungry and weak. It makes him thirsty and faint. Then the woodcarver measures a block of wood and draws a pattern on it, and he works with chisel and plane, and he carves it into a human figure. He gives it human beauty and he puts it in a little shrine. He cuts down cedars and he selects the cypress and the oak and he, he, he plants the pine in the forest to be nourished by the rain. Then he uses part of the wood to make a fire, which with it he warms himself and bakes his bread. Then yes, it's true, he takes the rest of it and he makes himself a god to worship. He makes an idol and he bows down in front of it. He burns part of the tree to roast his meat and keep himself warm. He says, ah, oh, that fire feels good. Then he takes what's left and he makes his God, a carved idol. And he falls down in front of it, worshiping and praying to it. Rescue me, he says. You are my God. Such stupidity and ignorance. Their eyes are closed and they cannot see. Their minds are shut and they cannot think. The person who made the idol never stops to reflect. Why? It's just a block of wood. <laughs> I burned half of it for heat and used it to bake my bread and roast my meat. How can the rest of it be a God? Should I bow down and worship a piece of wood? The poor, deluded fool feeds on ashes. he trusts something that he cannot that cannot help him at all, yet he cannot bring himself to ask, "Is this idol that i 'm holding in my hand a lie?" Now, that passage church should wake us up, and maybe you 're saying, "Whoa, whoa, whoa now." I'm not making any idols out of stone or wood or metal. That's just ridiculous. It has nothing to do with me. But what do we turn to in hardship? What is it that we worship with our time and our efforts and our affection? What is it, church, that we cannot live without? Could it be that we are looking for something in church other than Christ? (laughs) And would we be bold enough to examine what we have holding in our hands and ask, is this what I'm holding in my hand a lie? Because our focus must be on Jesus. We must encourage each other. We must exhort each other. Turn your eyes to Jesus. I have one more difficult topic to address, but we're coming around to some very, very good news soon. And this one, which is not going to be a very popular one, but I believe the word of God is very clear, that the church is expected to endure hardships. You see, we want to be people who are eagerly waiting for the return of Christ. When we read scriptures, it is undeniably clear that Christians are supposed to expect, <laughs> lean into, and embrace suffering with joy. And That is incredibly hard, <laughs> But our focus is not to be on what we can see, but on the unseen world. We refuse to become citizens just here on this earth because we are living as temporary residents on the earth, waiting for a better city. In Luke 9, Jesus tells us, And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. I mean, this seems like a very, very discouraging invitation. If I were to put a sign-up sheet in the back that said suffering in bold letters at top, I can't imagine that there would be any of us that would run back there and put our names down. But we should take note that we are not alone. You are following Christ, and we are collectively called to surrender our will and our comfort zone life as we know it we are betting it all on Christ. In church, we can trust him. Collectively, we gather together to encourage, to support, and to exclaim, Jesus, you are enough. It's not about the riches, and it's not about the position, and Jesus, you are enough, and I will endure whatever is laid before me if it means suffering for your good and holy name because you came and laid down your life for me, for us, for your church, for your bride. So why shouldn't we do the same? Why should my concern be the comforts of my sinful heart when you are inviting us to be a part of your body, a part of your harvest, a part of your vine, your bride? Jesus does not abandon us. And he does not leave us ashamed. Ephesians 2.13 says, But now you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. We've been united with him. We belong to him. There's joy in that statement that we belong to Jesus. Jesus. This wrench I have right here is actually a really important tool. <laughs> um, it used to belong to my grandfather. When he was an airplane mechanic for the armed forces, um, he would work on the airplanes and he had his own tools. And um, later on in his life, he would teach me how to make birdhouses and, and little crafts and things like that. But this, this wrench has traveled with me from country to country. <laughs> And I care so much about it because my grandfather cared about it. He was tired of his co-workers stealing his tools. So he took this wrench and he engraved his name on it. That's an old wrench. It's not worth very much, but it means so much to me because my grandfather cared enough about it to write his name on it and to carry it with him long after his service. And I want to close it with a passage that's found in Isaiah. And it's talking about the suffering of God's people. And it was written in one of their darkest times. I mean, their city had been taken over, largely destroyed. Their temples were sacked. I mean, the church that they thought of was basically destroyed. Their king that they had so loved and served under and had respected God, he had died. So this was one of the darkest moments But in that dark moment, we can find encouragement. Whenever you feel forgotten in your suffering or whenever you feel unconvinced of God's goodness, know that it is impossible for God to forget you because you belong to him. This is what it says in Isaiah 49. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people, and I will have compassion on his afflicted. But Zion, God's people, his church, had said, "'The Lord has forsaken me. "'The Lord has forgotten me.'" Look at the response. "'Can a woman forget her nursing child, "'that she should have no compassion "'on the son of her womb? "'Even these, even she may forget, "'yet I will never forget you. "'Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands.'" Your walls are continually before me. Now that passage, it's a messianic foreshadowing of the nail-scarred hands of Jesus. And these are the same hands that reach out and extend to us an invitation to take up our cross daily and to follow him. Know that we are engraved on his hands. The scars on his hands are the engravings of our names, (laughs) Our plights and our sufferings, our hardships are constantly before him. Do not doubt his goodness, church. And think about it this way. If the person next to you, church, is so important that God sent his son to the earth to live a sinless life, to be nailed on a cross, shouldn't we care about that person as well? And I mean deeply care. We're gathered here today not because you know, well, Foster's is closed and we have nothing else to do yet. (laughs) But we are gathered here because we need each other. We need to be prayed for. We need wisdom. We need healing. And we know that it's nobody here has the power to do it alone, but we are all empowered by God's Holy Spirit to unite us, to care, to serve one another. We are not meant to do this life alone. And God gave us an incredible gift in giving us the church. Church is not just a passive service in which we come together and we remain untouched, unaffected, unchanged. No, we must be devoted worshipers of God, led by the Holy Spirit to do the things he planned to do for us long ago. It's not about us coming here and ticking off a box. That was never the reason for the church. The reason for the church was because we need the church. We need Jesus, and we need his Holy Spirit to help us. The church is not a building. Christ is building his church. We are called to serve. We are designed to serve others as a part of our service to God. Our focus is to be on Christ alone. Church, we cannot let idolatry infiltrate this place. And we will expect to endure hardships, yet we are not alone because Christ has done everything. He's done everything for us. Now, I struggled with a way of how to close this message and, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and ask Laura and the band to, to join me on the stage. But I think we need to take a little time to pray for each other. Now, I'm not going to ask you to stand yet. But could we just, I know this is incredibly uncomfortable, and I'm, I'm sorry if, well, I'm not sorry. Would you look to the person next to you and just look at them the eyes, and I know there's some people that are going to not want to do this because that is incredibly uncomfortable. Look at them. You might not know them. Um, I know that Laura helped me out earlier and that you might have known a name. We're going to spend two minutes just praying. And while I'm praying, I want you to pray for that person next to you. You might know them. You might not know them. Um, But this is what we're supposed to do, church, It's not a gathering of us to just look at this guy up here on stage and look at these people that are leading us in worship, but we are the church. So let's pray as a church for the church. So, yeah, if you guys could maybe play instrumentally for a little bit, and then I'm going to pray, and then you're going to sing. Great. (laughs) God, we come together. Lord, we want to be your church. We want to be your bride. And God, I know that there's people here that are hurting. And maybe they didn't come today thinking that this would get so personal or that this would be so intrusive into their life, Lord. But we, we desperately need each other. We thank you, Lord, that we have the church, that we have the ability that we can pray for one one another and that we can can give words of wisdom, that we can heal one another. Lord, your word says it and we believe it, God. We want to be a biblical church. We want to be a church like Acts. So Lord, I pray for these people that are gathered together. Lord, this is the church. This building, the programs that we do are not the church, Lord. These people, Lord, you gave your life for them. So, Lord, I pray that where they are right now, that they would find incredible comfort for whatever suffering they might be going through. That they would find incredible joy just in in knowing that they are a part of something so much greater than, than just themselves. Something eternal. You are building us into an eternal family, God. And we're so thankful for that. Jesus, you are our focus and our attention, Lord. There's no one else and nothing else that can take that place, Lord. So I pray that you would just remove any idols that we have in our lives. If there's any idols here in this church, Lord, I pray that you would take them away so that we will not be ashamed on that day of judgment, Lord. And we can just say, if we had our eyes on you, Lord, and we are so thankful that we had our eyes on you, so Lord, we're going to do that right now. We're going to sing this song and we're going to continue to just worship you and thank you, Lord, for all that you've done, God. We're so thankful for your word. We're so thankful for who you are. So Lord, as we sing together as a church, as we sing and worship you, Lord, I pray that you would unite us with a single vision <laughs> that you are worthy to be worshipped and that we give our lives to you name that we pray. Amen. Please join us in stand.